1: The real issue in this case is whether a partial day's worth of cement being unusable is more like a building potentially being blown up by terrorists or some cheese going bad.
0: The difference between the milk spoiling and killing the cow.
2: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover some of those things for Slate, and we are a few short days into 2023. And it's pretty darn clear there will be lots more rock'em sock'em coming from, among other things, a dysfunctional Republican House of Representatives, which this week went after the IRS and abortion rights. The US Supreme Court, which has yet to issue a report on the Dobbs leak, and the Biden administration, which keeps on turning up classified documents it failed to return. And of course, George Santos, who will never be mentioned again on this show, but he is still a member of Congress, despite the fact that his entire political career seems to have been a protracted game of two truths and everything else is always a lie. The Supreme Court was back in action this past week following Chief Justice John Roberts' report at the end of the year in which I I guess he compared Dobbs to school desegregation cases and then fretted about judicial safety but not judicial ethics rules. Our show today is another one of those double headers. First, we are looking at a case that was heard Tuesday that may have really big implications for the right to strike and the future of unions. And then we'll be speaking to Brad Meltzer. He's the author of countless legal thrillers about his latest, rip from history, titled The Nazi Conspiracy, which just dropped this week. Later on in the show, Slate Plus members are going to get a check-in with Slate's very own Mark Joseph Stern about some of the things we couldn't get to in the main show, including Virginia's proposed 15-week abortion ban. That conversation with Mark can only be accessed by Slate Plus members. If you would like to join us and have access to bonus segments from lots of your favorite Slate shows, completely ad-free episodes, and if never ever hitting a paywall for any of Slate's articles sounds good to you too, well then go to slate.com slash Plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash Plus. And as ever, thank you so much for supporting the work that we do. But first, labor. Which is very cool again, Uh, which may be why the Supreme Court reached out and grabbed a case that could decimate workers' rights to organize. This court loves to be in step with prevailing public opinion. Yeah. The case is called Glacier Northwest Inc. versus International Brotherhood of Teamsters, and it was argued this past week at the court. The dispute stems from a 2017 strike by workers at a Washington State concrete company. Cement truck drivers abandoned their trucks at the start of the strike, some of which had some cement mix in them, resulting in a financial loss for the company. The company then sued drivers to recover the cost of that cement that was unusable after the workers walked off the job. Federal law holds that workers are not responsible for inadvertent financial losses that result from a strike, but the company in this case, Glacier, filed a tort suit against the union in state court, and they argued that they had lost $100,000 as a result of failing to fulfill a contract on the day of the strike, and then they claimed other damages— The Washington State Supreme Court ruled that Glacier Northwest could not sue in state court, saying the whole matter had to be resolved by the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. Glacier brought that ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court, which heard arguments this past Tuesday. This question of whether companies can sue labor in state courts to evade the NLRB It may seem hyper-technical, but it actually has huge implications for the future of labor. So, to unpick and unpack all that, I spoke to Terry Gerstein. She is director of Harvard Law School's Center for Labor and a Just Economy. She's also a senior fellow at the Economic Policy Institute. Terry writes about labor for all sorts of places, including Slate.com. And before all that, she worked for over 17 years enforcing labor laws in New York State including as the Labor Bureau Chief for the New York State Attorney General's Office and as a Deputy Commissioner in the New York State Department of Labor. Terry, first and foremost, man, I've been wanting to have you on for a long time. It is a treat to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having
1: me to talk about this really problematic and
2: concerning case, but I'm glad to be on the show to have the chance to talk about it. So first, I want you to help us understand what the National Labor Relations Act, dates back to 1935, protects, both in terms of workers' right to strike And also, maybe if you can explain what the NLRB is, too, because we're going to be throwing that around. But just give us a sense what the structure is. This has been pretty stable, I think, for quite some time. And maybe also, I'm going to ask you to explain (laughs) federal preemption doctrine, which is also really implicated in all this. So good luck with that first question. Now you go. (laughs) Great. So the National Labor Relations Act
1: is the federal labor law that gives workers the right to organize, the right to form a union. It gives unions and workers the right to strike. Interestingly, one point that isn't talked about as much, it it doesn't only apply to unions. It also gives workers the right to take collective action to improve their working conditions. So it is kind of broader than I think a lot of people think about it. And the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, is the federal agency that basically administers the National Labor Relations Act. The NLRB holds union elections, when workers have petitioned to try to get a union, when there are allegations that there are unfair labor practices. So like if an employer fires a worker, you know, for organizing a union, that's an unfair labor practice and the NLRB hears those cases. The idea is that the NLRB and the law, the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, that they're supposed to sort of generally regulate labor relations throughout the country. The goal is to have some kind of consistency in labor relations across different industries, across different geographies, so that it's not like completely different in terms of union employer relations in every state. I think it's important also to note that National Labor Relations Act does not cover all workers. It covers most private sector workers, but it doesn't cover public sector workers. And also there were some initial exemptions, including farm workers and domestic workers, which came out of basically a racist deal during the New Deal when the law was passed. So that not relevant to our discussion today, but um, worth noting that it does not cover everyone. You asked also about preemption. Preemption is basically a general concept that sometimes there'll be one higher part of government that prevents the lower part of government, the smaller entity from acting. So you can have federal preemption that prevents states and localities from getting involved. You can also have state preemption where states say local government like cities and counties can't get involved. And basically when preemption happens is when the legislature wants that entity, whether it's the federal government or the state government to sort of own the space. And usually there are some exemptions to preemption, um, so it's not typically absolute, um, but that's what preemption is as a general matter. NLRA preemption, there are a few different kinds of preemption when states are not allowed to get involved. And the one that's at play here is one that is known as Garmin preemption because Garmin was the mother case where this concept was originally articulated. And Garmin preemption basically says that if conduct by workers, by employers, if it's arguably protected or prohibited by the National Labor Law, by the NLRA, then states and localities are preempted from acting. That's sort of the key preemption that's at issue in this case. So that means that generally, like, a state can't just add on additional penalties on its own for conduct that is covered by the NLRA. There are some exceptions, though, the language is kind of weird that articulates the exceptions. The language is if it's so deeply rooted in local feeling, which like, I don't really know what that means. But what it's been sort of, you know, what what Garmin talks about, if you that the local feeling is what is always cited in court cases, but when you actually look at Garmin, it talks about things like violence and preserving domestic peace. And so the idea is the classic example that people always give that I don't love because it like plays into this stereotype of unions as violent or whatever, but like the classic example people always give is, you know, you you have a right to strike and to picket, but like if someone punches someone on on the picket line, like that is not protected, that's assault. And so that's one of the exceptions. Um, to Garmin and to preemption is that the state can get involved when there's things that are like really really within state law that involve violence or vandalism or really putting people in danger or disturbing again that term domestic peace you know for our purposes those are the exemptions to Garmin that are at play in this case
2: And just to be clear, because it's of a piece with some big themes we've seen regarding precedent in the last term or two at the Supreme Court, Garmin, San Diego Building Trades Council versus Garmin goes back to 1959, right? This has kind of been settled precedent. As you said, there is, you know, this sweeping rule that conduct that's even arguably protected by Section 7 or 8 of the NLRA is just not subject to state adjudication, to state remedies. That's the thing that's being challenged. And I think it's really important to locate this in a line of cases that we've seen in the last term or two, where like precedent schmesident seems to be <laughs> the name of the game. Right. I know that's not doctrinally accurate. But as you said, there are exceptions, and we're going to talk about one of them. But this feels like it's a just big honking bite out of what has been established precedent, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Garmin is older than you and Garmin is older than I am. Garmin has been around for a very long time. To me, the idea of an employer filing a tort lawsuit for losing a partial day's worth of concrete of a perishable product during a a strike. You know, if I had been the company's lawyer, I would have said, oh, we can't file that. That's frivolous. The conduct is clearly arguably protected. It's preempted by Garmin. There's tons of precedent and, and cases under Garmin for years and years. The Washington Supreme Court was unanimous. There is absolutely no precedent at all where the loss of a perishable product, like, you know, there are cases involving milk, and cheese, and chicken, and poultry processing plants. Part of the purpose of a strike, and Congress understood this when it passed the National Labor Relations Act, workers have the right to strike. And part of the purpose of the strike is to inflict economic harm on the employer. It's, you know, withdrawing their labor is the greatest power that workers have to get some kind of bargaining power. And so, There's going to be economic harm that's inherent and that's kind of the point. And so the key question here is, given the facts of what happened in this case, was this economic harm just sort of the normal kind of inherent harm that happens when workers go on strike or Was this like akin to vandalism, violence? And the examples that Glacier's attorney used in the oral argument and in their briefs are
2: just so wildly different from what happened here. So let's play for a minute Noel Francisco offering up this (laughs) bucket. And we should note Noel Francisco, former Solicitor General under Donald Trump, now working for Jones Day. Let's play uh, a little bit of audio of that sort of, I think it's, it's a bouquet of, I think you would say, inapposite or not comparable scenarios.
0: The court and the board have long recognized that the intentional destruction of an employer's property in the course of a labor dispute is not protected concerted activity. That's why steel workers can't walk out in the middle of a molten iron pour. It's why federal security guards can't leave their posts in the middle of a terrorist threat. It's why a ferry boat crew can't drive their boat out into the middle of the river and abandon ship. And it's why in this very case, the government agrees that the conduct alleged in this complaint isn't even arguably protected.
1: It's an analogy that is stretched. It doesn't work at all. Security guards for federal buildings walking off the job and going on strike during an active terrorist threat. Is that comparable to the amount of concrete that actually... Was unusable was eleven thousand dollars worth. So um, ferry boat workers who abandon ship in the middle of a river, uh, steel workers who leave the factory while molten steel is being poured, which could lead to you know explosions, and all of the situations that that were given as a comparison involved loss of life, damage to the premises. Again, that kind of like violence, like domestic peace, you know, being implicated. In this case, it's really interesting when you look at the actual facts of what happened with the drivers. First of all, and this is sort of not discussed in the oral argument, Usually the workers did not know they'd get to work and they didn't know all the jobs that they would have and exactly what they would do. But there's one kind of pour that's like when they pour the base for a huge building and then they know in advance. And in fact, there was supposed to be a pour for a huge building and they were going to strike on that day and they chose to strike on a different day to avoid that damage. And yet, by contrast, Glacier did not really prepare for a potential strike. The strike happened during a period that was days after their contract had expired, which is typically a time when workers might go on strike. And the company deals with quick dry cement. And so given that, you know, it certainly seems reasonable that a quick dry cement company would make some kind of contingency plans and have some kind of backups, um, you know, on call in case there's a strike during the period when they're in intense negotiations and a contract has expired. The contract had a no strike clause, that no strike clause. Had expired. So, really, the company had the ability to mitigate any of this damage by doing their own operational planning ahead, and they didn't do so. Then, when the workers actually went on strike, all of them returned the trucks to the parking lot, and there were trucks that hadn't been filled yet, there were trucks in the process of being filled, and there were some that had been out for delivery, and they left the motors running. And they did that because it's quick-dry cement. And so if they didn't leave the concrete drums running, the concrete would have dried. So it's not like they abandoned the trucks in the middle of the street. It's not like they took them to go see Olympia National Park or something. They were in Washington State. They brought them back to the parking lot and left them running. And about half of the workers told the managers there's still concrete in the trucks. And the managers actually managed to get, the Glacier's managers, they got all the concrete out of the trucks. There was no harm to the trucks. They had to spend time doing it. I'm sure it was a total pain, right? They had to spend time doing it, but there was no damage to the premises, to the trucks. It was a partial day's worth of a perishable product. It's just very unclear how workers could have a right to strike. You know, one question um, Justice Sotomayor, I think, asked,
3: Could a state tell mm-hmm the union, don't go on strike except at the end of the day?
0: No, Your Honor, what I'm saying is... Well,
3: what's the difference between that and saying don't go on strike while the truck has cement that you can offload if you want, you can hire people to offload it, you can do Mm -hmm. what you did, um, and it's your property. The moment I walked out on strike... I didn't owe you a duty to protect your property from self-perishment.
1: That is kind of the implication. And the NLRA doesn't require workers, except healthcare workers, to give advance notice of a strike. If you're working with perishable products, if you're working with food, if you're in a seasonal industry, you know, how are you actually supposed to strike given the purpose is to inflict some economic harm? If you and in, in any way strategically plan your timing, Then it suddenly is converted into the same thing as like abandoning a federal building during a terrorist threat, you know, and risking loss of life. It's nonsensical as a comparison.
2: We are going to pause to hear from some of our great sponsors. We'll be back with more from Terry in just one moment.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. Which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to five percent to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com/easy. 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 Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Let's return to our conversation with Terry Gerstein. I want to listen for one second to some audio. You just mentioned uh, Elena Kagan making essentially the point that like isn't ultimately kind of impeding corporate profits. The point? Workers, unions do things all the time intentionally to maximize economic harm. You know, that uh, if there's a seasonal uh, component of a business, workers will try to time their strike in order to maximize the economic harm because, you know, more of the business is conducted in the summer than in the winter. Uh, Things like that. So, Terry, that's essentially the point you just made, that if the only thing you can do when you strike is do your job and think angry thoughts, you're not really going to be super effective, right? And I should note here before you answer that, one of the things that was interesting, I think, at this oral argument Tuesday is that we heard the three liberal justices talking a lot and very, very little, actually, from the conservative supermajority, including folks that we know, like Justice Alito, have a sort of rabid loathing of unions and organizing. So we heard a lot from the, the sort of left wing of the bench, very much in the key of what is it that you think striking actually involves, right? Right.
1: Yes. You know, listening to the oral argument, you would come out thinking this is going pretty well. I think this is going to I think this might come out great for us. Right. But, you know, then you look at the composition and it's kind of curious why there was that silence. There was An exchange about the role of government agencies in the administrative state where Justice Gorsuch said, what's the harm if we don't let these state court cases happen? And Noel Francisco said, you know,
0: frankly, we'd prefer not to be before an administrative agency where the agency is the judge, jury and executioner.
1: Which is like so overwrought and strange. But also the reason these agencies exist is because they have expertise, because they see Thousands and thousands of these cases, they understand the law and they can apply it consistently.
2: It's really, again, of a piece with this theme of such a deep mistrust, Terry, of the administrative state. And this, I mean, just the the language of executioner uh, being deployed as though the NLRB, like at the end of the day, is going to like take out a gun and shoot some people. And so can you locate this for me? And I know you do this in your piece in Slate that you wrote up about the argument, but in this just deep, deep sense of mistrust of the administrative state, the federal government, of sort of faceless bureaucrats who are hellbent on destroying democracy and capitalism, this feels like it's that theme that both Francisco and Justice Gorsuch were playing with that argument. I think it's that theme.
1: And I think it's also just a deep animosity toward workers and toward organized labor that we've seen in a string of cases a misapprehension of the disparity of power between workers and employers, and it feels like a a real program, an intentional program to weaken unions and weaken workers' rights. The other recent cases that sort of fall along those lines, we had Cedar Point, in which there was a state law in California that allowed farmworker unions to have really limited access for a finite amount of time to talk to workers who are, farmworkers are, extremely difficult to reach. I've actually gone out with farm worker lawyers and with investigators and like, it is really hard. Um, And so this law allowed unions to have a finite amount of time, just go on the premises, very finite amount of time and talk to workers. And the Supreme Court ruled that that was a taking. And so there was that. And then there was the Janus Supreme Court case in which the majority basically made right to work the law for all public sector workers, basically meaning that generally previously workers had had to pay fair share fees in order to get the benefits of being represented by the union and the court ruled that that was unconstitutional. And then there was the Epic Systems case from a few years ago, and that dealt with, it wasn't directly about unions, but what that case was about was it was about whether workers could be required to sign away the right to bring a class action in forced arbitration class waiver clauses. So a lot of times workers have to sign when they start a job, they sign a contract. People might not even know they're signing it because it's an amount of paperwork or it's on a range of touchscreens, but people give up their right to bring a case in court and instead they have to go to arbitration, which is secretive and a lot less rights and workers lose more often. And it's hard to get a lawyer to bring a case in arbitration because if you can't aggregate cases, economically it doesn't work for them. And so the Supreme Court in Epic Systems, you know, you would think that bringing a class action, the National Labor Relations Act protects your right to take collective action. Co- joining together and suing your employer, how can that not be collective action? It's like inherently collective action just because it happens in court through a class action. That is collective action. And so the Supreme Court was sort of having to deal with the perceived tension, because I think it was completely readily resolvable. Um, But the Federal Arbitration Act um, sort of favors arbitration agreements. And the Supreme Court basically said, yeah, you can require your employees to sign away their right to bring a class action. And that's not a violation of your collective action rights. And so, You know, we just see in all of these cases again and again situations where the Supreme Court is taking very anti-worker positions. And I've even heard from some actually government lawyers that they're hearing from major companies who are taking really outlying positions that they're hearing the company's lawyers say, well, you know, we'll we'll take our chances because we feel pretty good about how the Supreme Court is going to go. So it's really empowering companies and disempowering workers and, and disempowering also, like I said, like state and local government
2: enforcement agencies. Um, the DOJ, speaking of government lawyers, took a kind of interesting compromise position in this case. So they intervened in this case on behalf of neither party. And then they took a position that essentially was like, let's just let the state courts resolve this and, you know, the NLRB can clean it up after. And I think that looked attractive to a lot of the justices as a sort of compromise position. What's going on there? My
1: best guess is that the government is trying to create an off-ramp, sort of a third way that doesn't completely eviscerate Garmin and eviscerate workers' right to strike. And so the government's argument was a little hard to follow, but the government's argument was to the effect of that the state court should look at the cases and look at the facts as alleged on the complaint. But then once the NLRB makes a determination and like if they issue a complaint that the state court needs to decide what's the relevance of that, So under Garmin right now, if conduct is arguably prohibited or protected by the NLRA, then states are preempted and state courts are preempted and state tort lawsuits are preempted. This the government approach, I'm not 100% sure how it would work, but it does seem to preserve some element of garmin because it sort of says like okay once the NLRB has clearly weighed in that the conduct you know you're sort of out of the arguably conversation maybe but once the NLRB has clearly weighed in that conduct is prohibited or protected then the state courts need to take notice of that and act accordingly but it was it was it was a little confusing to me honestly sort of what that what that does and I think it does you know I think that would be better than a complete loss but it would still allow employers to f- to file these you know harassing and vexatious lawsuits against unions and chill unions from being able to strike and chill workers from being able to strike because in the back of their head like they don't know what kind of state court judge they're going to get and they don't know what's going to happen are they going to be subject to really ruinous damages
2: and unions don't have a lot of resources Terry, I said sort of flipply at the top of the show that labor organizing has become cool again, but it it really has become cool again. And I I just want to flick at the fact that Bloomberg Law this week reported that U.S. labor unions engaged in the most work stoppages last year since 2005 – and I just want to sort of raise again, uh, the question that I said flippantly in my introduction, which is maybe it's not a coincidence that this is the moment that, as you said, uh, lawyers on, on the uh, corporate side and Chamber of Commerce is involved on the other side at this, in this suit, but that lawyers are willing to take big risky swings and that the court is willing to reach out and take big risky swings. And indeed, as we said at the top of the show, to unsettle precedent that its long-standing precedent. Those things are not unrelated, right? It's almost this sense that as America falls in love again with ideas about labor and organizing, the court's here to stomp it down. So I have a couple of thoughts in response to that. One is,
1: I think it's really valuable to put the popularity of the new sort of labor being cool again, the popularity of unions and the upsurge in organizing in a couple of contexts. One of them is, the vast disparity between how many workers would like to be in a union when they're surveyed and how many people actually are. Our labor laws are severely outdated. They really favor employers and they are imbalanced. They just really need an overhaul. There's a law that's been proposed in Congress for a couple of years now, the PRO Act, that would do that. But right now, our private sector unionization rate is around 6%. But when you ask workers, do you want to be in a union in surveys, 50% say they would like to be in a union if they could at their workplace. And 70% of respondents in surveys say that they support or approve of unions or have a positive impression of unions. So there's this like tremendous disparity there. So that's one important sort of framing issue. The other is just sort of what unions represent in democracy. And I think a lot of people who are like traditional, like liberals or Democrats don't necessarily fully, you know, because unions have been so in decline over the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, don't really understand fully the role of unions in our democracy. So for starters, unions are one of the only major large institutions to scale that give voice to the interests of working people and not like corporate oligarchs, right? Their money is obviously, you know, they do get involved in politics. They do press for pro-worker policies and laws and candidates. Their money is dwarfed again by, you know, billionaires and corporations, but they are sort of one of the few ways that there is large institutional voicing of working people's interests. And then also there's all of this really interesting research about the role that unions play in relation to democracy. For example, in regions that have higher union density, civic participation is higher. There's higher registration. There's higher incidences of people voting. The theory is that this is both because unions do a lot of political activism and get out the vote. And then also that workers have the experience of democracy through voting for leaders in their unions and sort of actually participating in workplace democracy. And there's also interestingly given the incredibly divided times that we live in, there have been some studies that show that belonging to a union reduces racial resentment among white workers, which I think is really interesting. And it it you know, it makes perfect sense when you think about it because the employers employers writ large, like the, you know, corporate interests for generations, the ways that they divide workers is sort of that divide and conquer by appealing to racial and other differences. And so unions, people can be different, race, religion, have a lot of different kinds of differences, but they have this shared interest that they're working together and they understand themselves as having that shared interest and that shared collective identity. Um there's a lot of research showing that they increase wages and working conditions when there's enough union density in an industry. They increase wages and working conditions not just For union members, but even in non-unionized employers, because they have to compete in order to attract workers. So there's a way that unions have played all of these roles of lifting up both their members, but also the rights of working people generally, including through participation in democracy. And so, you know, I think when people talk about the threat to our democracy, most people don't think about Unions and the threat to unions as a part of that. But I do think that, again, as one of the major institutions speaking up for ordinary people in a way that actually sometimes has real teeth, I think that unions really are inherently a part of the democratic fabric and the threat to them is something that has implications for democracy.
2: It's so interesting, Terry, listening to you talk just now, I'm so mindful of those Gen Z voters, right? The, the young people who came out in the midterm, out of all proportion, I think, to what a lot of us expected, especially in a midterm, in part reacting to the fact that no matter what they do or how hard they work, they will be less well off than their parents, they will never be able to repay college loans you know, but for um, federal intervention and all the ways in which if I'm going to wildly overgeneralize, but if Gen Z voters are telling us anything, it's that as between siding with unions and the values you just laid out uh, of just having, you know, a meaningful wage and being able to have at least a shot at being as well off as their parents or funneling money to corporate oligarchs. They're pretty much on team union. And it's so interesting, (laughs) again, to see how out of step the court is with sort of, you know, public zeitgeist and public will, it does lead me to, you know, my very quick last question, which is, you wrote such a good piece in Slate about this case with Jenny Hunter. And one of the things I think you flagged is that, you know, in addition to the threat to Garmin, the threat to labor, the threat, as you just noted, to democracy and how we do participatory democracy, there's actually a threat to the court's own legitimacy at play in this case. And I want to be clear, you know, like, I I don't want listeners to think that. I'm saying that the court needs to be in step with the Gen Z zeitgeist. That's not the point. But that the ways in which the court seems to be persistently trying to fight a tide of, you know, public values and deeply acculturated ideas about what it means to succeed and to work in this country. This feels like another shot across the bow to the court's own legitimacy in the public conversation about how we work.
1: Absolutely. One of the major reasons why I think this case is so problematic is there was absolutely no need to take this case in the first place. There was no split among the circuits. The Washington State Supreme Court case was unanimous. There was longstanding law. In light of all of that, it feels like just a grab to take a policy dig at unions and try and cut them off at the knees. From a, a strict legal perspective, thinking of the Supreme Court in the elevated ways that you know we kind of like grew up, th- Thinking of them until you know all of us got disillusioned at various different ages, but um, you know, thinking of the traditional role that they would play, there is absolutely no reason that they should have accepted this case, and so it really feels like another example of just trying to enact policy, their preferred policy, ignoring precedent, and trying to favor corporations against ordinary people, again, against the will of the majority of the country. And it's so interesting because when you hear the oral argument, you read the briefs, like none of these key issues about democracy, about power dynamics between workers and employers about eroding working conditions, none of these things ever actually, I mean, that's what lawyering is, right? None of these core issues ever get actually discussed in the case. But it really is, I think, what this case and so many
2: of the court's cases on labor issues are about. Terry, you are amazing. (laughs) You explained really, really wonky things, and you did it so clearly. Thank you very, very much for being with us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure to talk about
1: this case. Not a pleasure to think about the case, but a pleasure to talk about the case. (laughs) Pleasure
2: to talk about thinking about the case. That was Terry Gerstein. She is the director of Harvard Law School's Center for Labor and a Just Economy, She's also a senior fellow at the Economic Policy Institute. She writes about labor for all sorts of places, including Slate.com. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Brad Meltzer on the bonkers plot from World War II that has kind of a lot to tell us about our current moment and the very surprising parallels it contains for anyone who is now or who has ever been in 11th grade. Our second guest today is one of my oldest friends in the universe of writing about the law. He is novelist, graphic novelist, kids biographer, Brad Meltzer, probably one of the very first people I got to know when I started writing about law right out of law school, and he probably needs no introduction to you. Brad Meltzer is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Inner Circle, The Book of Fate, nine other bestselling thrillers, including The Tenth Justice, The First Council, The Millionaires, and The President's Shadow. And in addition to all of that fiction, Brad is one of the only authors to ever have books on the bestseller list for nonfiction, History Decoded, Advice. Heroes for My Son and Heroes for My Daughter, and children's books, I Am Amelia Earhart, I Am Abraham Lincoln, and even graphic novels, Justice League of America, for which he won the Eisner Award. Brad is also host of the History Channel TV shows Brad Meltzer's Decoded and Brad Meltzer's Lost History, and responsible for helping find the missing 9-11 flag that the firefighters raised at Ground Zero, making national news on the 15th anniversary of 9-11, And this week, because he is Brad Meltzer, he debuts not one, but two books. His children's book is I Am John Lewis, and his true thriller is The Nazi Conspiracy, the true story of the plot to kill FDR, Stalin, and Winston Churchill in World War II, co-written with Josh Mensch. Both of those books, like I said, somehow launched this week, and Brad has done more to, I think, marry the law and ideas about the rule of law to popular fiction and popular culture than almost any human i know and here is where i would also say that um when i told both of my sons who are brad Meltzer super fans that i was taping with him today they just went into like tiny raptures because they're super fans so brad that might be the longest intro in the history of amicus but i think you've earned it welcome to the show
3: i love the fact that you have that that was the intro because i really thought you were going to be like here's my friend brad and that's it uh The best part of that whole introduction was what you said about your boys, which is the best part.
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, I also, uh, to be clear, my younger son was like, oh, yeah, no, Mom, he's a really good writer.
3: Well, you should introduce him to my children who recently said to my wife, my wife was saying that I I fell in love with my wife because I thought she was the smartest one in the room. And then my daughter said to her, I know that about you, Mom, but let's be honest— dad's not the smartest. Why do you love him? And I was just like, come on, (laughs) like, where's the love for my children?
2: They are, they are very, very mean, our littles. Um, So I I want to just start with the big, broad framing question, Brad, which is, you've been writing about the law for as long as certainly I've known you as long as I've been writing about the law. And I, I wanted to ask you about this weird American love affair with novels and movies and kids' books and stories about the law and about court cases and famous lawyers and famous judges and big legal ideas. And I'm wondering if you have some insight into – I mean, I could – Certainly, say it goes back to the framers. I could say it goes back to, you know, the fact that this is a country born uh, of lawyers making law. But do you have some theory? Is this a uniquely American phenomenon to be just completely enchanted by tales of law and lawyers? Um, is this kind of watching of the courts and the law? The U.S. equivalent of being obsessed with the royals in the U.K., it's just like the big screen morality play that we use as a template for everything.
3: I love that this is our royal watching. I mean, I remember when I started law school on the very first day, the dean of the law school said, look at any article in the newspaper, anything on the front page, pick anyone there. And every single one of those stories has a lawyer involved in it. And he just let that sit with the room. And I used to think, oh, it's because you know, we're so important and we, therefore that's why we love these stories. But I think as I get older and look at it, and maybe this just reveals my my storytelling brain taking over, but I think one of the other reasons we love the law, and I agree with everything you said, but I think is that the law provides uh, this kind of finality between good and evil That we don't get in real life all the time. It sets a framework up. Here's the good guy. Here's the bad guy. Did he or she do it? And if they will, they will be punished. And there's something uniquely satisfying. It gives you a story start to finish. I remember my agent said to me, Brad, there will always be three types of stories you're always going to see on TV. And it's doctors and it's police and it's lawyers. Because each one of them has a a three-act structure to it. The person comes into the hospital, they're sick, you save them, you heal them, right? There's a crime, you go in, you save them, the end of the crime. There's a law case, there's a crime, you figure out who did it and you punish them. And I think that if I really wanna go back evolutionary wise and really get nerdy, I think we have a love of story as human beings. And I think we really love story as Americans because we're a country founded on legends and myths and the legends and myths we love most are our own.
2: I love that. And I maybe it's a really good segue to John Lewis, um, which is, uh, correct me if I'm right, this is number 29 in the, the heroes of the New York Times bestselling picture book biography series, I Am John Lewis.
3: It's 29, which is crazy.
2: And I wonder if you could talk a little bit. um, I know you know that my kids grew up on your I Am books, uh, and I think probably a lot of listeners' kids did too. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about – this book, this moment, John Lewis, and maybe you're going to have to explain how you pick your subjects. This is a meditation on civil rights, I think, in the book. It's a, a meditation on voting rights, which are imperiled in ways that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. It's also, I think, uh, and we'll listen to a little clip from the audiobook, but it's a little bit of a meditation on standing up and doing something when you see something wrong.
0: I am John Lewis. What should you do when you see something that's unfair? Should you ignore it? Should you walk away? Or should you march forward and try to make things better?
2: So all of these themes and John Lewis feel awfully on the nose. And I wonder what you were trying to tell American kids about all these complicated legal themes.
3: You know, Dalia, I, I can say this to you because you're my friend. I. When it, when I started writing, I wasn't that brave. I just wanted to not fail, right? I, I just was struggling. I was the first in my family to go to a four year college. When my first book came out, I just didn't want it to to blow the opportunity, and so I, I played things safe and I, you know, and I did things that I thought were the right way to do them, whatever that means. With the kids' books, it's the one part of my career where I don't care about playing it safe. It's, it's where I'm my bravest and where I'm my, my most honest. I started the book series to give my kids better heroes to look up to. We started with I'm Amelia Earhart and I am Abraham Lincoln. We did Rosa Parks and Dr. King, of course. And in the beginning, it was very obvious who to choose, right? I mean, if you're gonna say, okay, what heroes do you want for your kids? People are gonna say Abraham Lincoln, Albert Einstein, Rosa Parks, it, It's very it, those come naturally. And then somewhere in there, Chris Eliopoulos is our incredible artist, and what we did was, is we started looking at what we wanted for our kids, not just who was popular who was famous, but we were like, what do we want for them? And then we, and we, and I admit, we, you know, we took a lot of kids were writing us letters. You know, there were a lot of kids who said, "Listen, um, you know, I'm Hispanic. When are you going to do a Hispanic hero?" It was the number one request we were getting, so we did Sonia Sotomayor. Because um, they said to me, "Don't do Frida Kahlo first. We don't want we don't want an entertainer." They kept writing me this, and I listened. We did. We had kids who were Asian and who said, "Where's our hero? You know, you've done a Native American, you've done Indian, you've done Black, you've done White. Where's ours?" And we did IMP. But John Lewis is one of those ones where we we threw all of that aside and just realized where the culture was in, in that moment. I mean, it was truly, you know, Dr. King is a is a beautiful book. It's one of our best-selling books. I Am Rosa Parks is one of our best-selling books. But John Lewis for me was about where race relations need to be talked about today. And he's someone who is, the book is all about teaching your kids how to get in good trouble and what he called necessary trouble, what he called the trouble that you stand up and, and do something about when you see injustice. And the book, as you saw, it literally teaches that. And and John Lewis, when he's a little boy, we always start when they're little. My favorite story in there is when he's little, his parents tell him like, listen, don't don't make a fuss. Like, just don't make problems. And his grandmother was different. His grandmother used to, if, if back then if you were black and a white person was walking down the street towards you, you were expected to cross to the other side of the street and move out of the way for them. And his grandmother was like, I'm not doing that. She was very respectful about it. She was just like, excuse me, I'm just gonna be walking right here, thank you very much. But he saw that and he saw the lessons of Dr. King and he saw the lessons of Rosa Parks and he was like, yeah, I need to do things differently. And I love the fact that I can teach my kids about good trouble and you're absolutely right. It tackles how we deal with the law and how, and it is hard. How do you teach your kids that when you see a law that's unfair, you can't listen to that one? And that's a complicated thing. But my one belief about our ordinary people change the world series is don't talk down to your kids. They they're smarter than you think they are. They'll be able to handle it. So when, when the editor said, You sure you want to talk about this with race relations? And with I'm like, You yeah, not even a question. We did slavery for Harriet Tubman. We did I am Frank Franken did the Holocaust for children. And um and we did it in an age appropriate way, but to me we need to be talking about the way John Lewis did things when we talk about race with our kids.
2: And and here I have to just interpolate In case folks don't know this, uh, based on what Brad just said, you can be sure that his books are not allowed in certain jurisdictions in this country, and it is just shocking, shocking that books like I Am Rosa Parks, I Am Dr. King are considered things that we cannot teach our children. I don't know if you want to add a gloss to that, Brad, but it just was one of those punch in the gut moments when I saw that happening this past year.
3: Yeah, they, they banned our I Am Rosa Parks and I Am Martin Luther King. Junior books in York County, Pennsylvania, um, not because of the content of it, they put all these books it was Malala 's book and Sonia sotomayor's book all these books that happened to be about black and brown people were all put on a list that the school board said i want to you know I want to wait a little bit and then we 'll see what, what what's going to happen with them and, and a year went by they promised they were going to read them a year went by they still hadn't read them, so it became a ban. I of course went to the school board on on a zoom meeting and, and fought the ban and read from the book and I said. Uh, and then all these students started reading and all these students started talking. And I thought I'd save the day for democracy, but these kids are like, we love these books. How dare you take these books of people that look like us off our shelves. And by the time they were done, it was like the ending of Braveheart. Like I wanted to just like sign up and be a teacher that day. Their speeches were so good. They didn't need me at all. Um, but the, the reality Dahlia is of course, we're still fighting book bans in 2023. And we all know if you're on, if you're, if you're banning books, you're on the wrong side of history.
2: So I want to talk about your other book, um, uh, The Nazi Conspiracy, co-written with Josh Mensch, also published this week. uh, And I confess I read it breathlessly. It's an amazing page-turner. But I wonder if this line of books that have been explorations of real-life historical conspiracies, it's really different uh, from what you've done in fiction. And I kind of find myself wondering... What is it in these real life TikTok breathtaking accounts of sometimes submerged history that appealed to you in a way that fiction wasn't enough?
3: what you're really saying is, what what what's enough for you, Brad? Come on, <laughs> what, what, what's enough? Like, uh, And the reality is, is, I don't know, I think if I said to you, what kind of movies do you like the most? And if you said, I love independent films, and I said, great, doll, you can just watch independent films for the rest of your life. Eventually, you're going to hate independent films pretty quickly. And and for me, um, I find some stories, and I'm like, that's a great, that I can use that in a thriller. And then I find other stories, and I'm like, oh, that's going to be a great kid's book. But then I found these plots to, you know, there were these lost moments in history that no one knew about. Or, you know, the first one I found was a plot to kill George Washington. And um, they told me, you know, there is no modern day book written about it. You'd be writing the first book about it. And I just thought, I have to do that. It was almost a five, six years went by. I, I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not writing a nonfiction book. But I couldn't shake the idea. And I kept, when I had free time, I'd be like searching for details on it. And, And to me as a writer, and you know this, that thing you can't put away, eventually, is the story you got to work on next. That thing, you, that story, you feel like you have to tell. And this one, uh, you know, let's just give some background on it. It's uh, it, it's set in 1942. And again, this is all real. It's nonfiction. It's the moment in the war where Joseph Stalin wants us, as the Allies, to invade continental Europe. He's getting pummeled by the Nazis. The Nazis, it's decimating for the Soviet Union. We're sending for, you know, a period of time munitions and weapons there. But he's like, no, you need to invade. Normandy needs to happen. You got to come and kind of save us here. And FDR is like, you know what? We got to get on the same page. We got to bring me and Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin together face to face, figure out troop movements, figure out morale, figure out the details. Millions of lives are at stake. And this is the moment where this meeting must take place in Tehran, Iran, of all places. And FDR comes in, he, you know, the motorcade is moving through the center of the city. And everyone's wants to see the president. He's traveled all the way to Tehran and they're all waving at the motorcade and they're all the person inside's waving back, but the person inside is not the president. The it's actually a Secret Service agent acting as a decoy. And the real FDR is on the other side of the city in a beat up sedan. Duck down in the back of the car and hiding as the sedan snakes through the city and the back streets there, because they're worried that there's a Nazi assassin who's going to kill him. Now, I just ruined chapter one of the Nazi conspiracy. That's the opening chapter, but for me, you know, that's the titillating thing to say, right? It's like we found this great plot, and isn't it amazing? But to me, the reason why we had to tell this story, Josh and I, is because we looked around at anti-Semitism and where they were two years ago. The levels were. And we said, what's this book really about? And we realized, of course, it's about standing up to authoritarians. It's about what happens when, you know, World War II seems like it's so far away, but Anne Frank and Barbara Walters were born on the same day. And here we are in 2023, still fighting Nazis, still fighting book bans, still trying to tell people don't fall for this, when you you know when when you see this authoritarian figure and and it's still sadly a battle, so that's why I have that's why I kind of made the switch to go and tell nonfiction.
2: It, I, I'm just gonna be. Um fanciful for one little minute on your dime, Brad, and say that by far my favorite part is the Mean Girls energy between Churchill and FDR and Stalin. And Stalin's just like poking the bear, poking the bear, trying to get Churchill to snap. Churchill like grumpy, you know, smoking his cigar, has a cold. He's super mad before the summit. And just the ways in which all three of them are just such ridiculous high school girls (laughs) at the same time that they are, you know, the leaders of the most important, you know, juggernaut in in uh, political history. And there's such an amazing back and forth uh, that you really sense uh, of all of these characters as both larger
3: than life and in some ways just really deeply human ego egomaniacs all. Oh they are they are a page away from b- building a burn book, right? I mean, they are just, <laughs> and and to me, the fun of it is, you know, we, again, talking about our own legends and myths in America, we love telling the story that we as Americans, we punched the Nazis in the jaw, we saved the day for democracy, and we won. And that's a nice story, but that's not what happened. It was, it, it was not a foregone conclusion we were going to win. And and as you said, the best part of the book, besides some of those Nazi scenes where you see these crazy Nazis and what they're doing, is watching just how precarious that alliance is, you know, my, my daughter said to me, it's kind of like survivor. I'm like, it's totally like survivor. Like you just, and, and I think, you know, after doing a book on George Washington and one on Abraham Lincoln, I think what makes a good president is not do you make the best speech and do you make the best promises. That's all nonsense. The best presidents are the ones who, when a disaster happens, they can adapt and deal with it. And, of course, we saw in the past few years what happens when you can't deal with a disaster that opens up here. And and, But what I was struck by is FDR has this kind of true belief that he's the most charming guy on the planet. He can charm Stalin because he's like, Stalin likes me way better than he likes you, Churchill. And he's like, and I can totally charm Churchill because I know he likes me better. And that mean girl's energy is no accident. That's what they're like. They're just human beings. They're not superheroes. They're not legends. They're just three guys who all want what they want. And and I think to me, that's what history is. It's breaking down the myth and showing you the human beings behind it.
2: I do want to ask you one much more serious question, Brad, which is it does feel as though this book is just shot through with themes that are still so resonant today as you said there's no way to read the scenes about the holocaust or mass graves Uh, there's no way to read i think any of the scenes around the atrocities uh, that the russians faced uh, that the chinese faced at the hands of uh, fascist uh, armies and fascist soldiers and i do think It's fairly clear to me that one of the reasons for some of these graphic scenes is to remind us both what has happened and what is still happening. And I wonder if you knew when you were writing this book how salient some of these conversations about the Russian war machine uh, were going to be, how salient conversations about, I'm sure you were already thinking about the rise of fascism and human rights atrocities and maybe, as you said, Holocaust denialism, but there is a way in which it does feel like, you're trying to surface historical themes we've all forgotten, partly because we like to tell the story of punching Nazis, but partly because we just are doomed to keep repeating these patterns until we learn them, right?
3: That is it, period. I mean, we... Josh, how many times, and listen, I'm Jewish. How many times have I heard Holocaust stories? How many times do I feel like, I know I got the Holocaust, I grew up with it. I had the relative who would come to Thanksgiving, we'd all gather around and look at the tattoo on her. You know, we, and, and then somehow in some strange, odd way in our, our fire hose of news, even the Holocaust, we just become adjusted to. And we just forget the sheer loss of life. I mean, to put it in perspective, the United States buried 421,000 people in World War II. The Great Britain buried about four hundred and fifty thousand. Soviet Union buried twenty four million people. It's a staggering loss of life. Twenty four million people, and even the Holocaust scenes—you know—the things that I, I love the most that we did with them is not just say, "Oh, here's the shock and awe of showing you some horrible scene to make you, you know, gasp." But we see the launch of the Holocaust in the Wannsee Conference. It's a boring government meeting. In the you know taking place outside Berlin, Every, all these bureaucrats trudge in. Everyone grabs a pencil from the pencil cup and they each get a file folder, as if they're you know some bureaucracy meeting where you're deciding what kind of what roads you want to pave that day or what trees you're going to cut down in the, in the nearby park. But instead, they're counting Jews and figuring out more efficient ways to slaughter them. And the reason we put those scenes in there is listen, we're, we make no bones about it is we love to blame everything on Adolf Hitler right he's the great enemy and the bad guy in our superhero obsessed culture and supervillain obsessed culture but we forget that all those people all those bureaucrats sat in those meetings and none of them did anything to stop it and you know when Kanye opens his mouth about the Jews or Charlottesville happened then we knew that obviously as we started the book We all wring our hands here and we're like, I can't believe there are Nazis here in America. I can't believe it's so awful. It should be in Germany, it should be in Europe, not here, certainly. And then we found that detail that I I love that we put in in the Nazi conspiracy is a Nazi rally that took place in Madison Square Garden. In the heart of New York City, 20,000 Nazis show up to the garden not to watch a Knicks game but because they're cheering with giant banners of George Washington decorated with swastikas. The first speaker of the rally says, if George Washington were alive today, he'd be friends with Adolf Hitler. And my God, to me, we're right back here again. And we forget the Holocaust doesn't start with death camps. It starts with slogans and propaganda and rallies and book bans. And it takes a group of white native-born germans who point the finger and basically want to tell a horrible story about those people, that marginalized group, those people. And and in this case it's the Jews or it becomes the gay community or it becomes the immigrant community, but when you see that term those people, that's when you have to stand up and use your voice and say enough. And of course, that's what the book's about is trying to show you that you know, if you don't you're going to just relive it because we're reliving it right now.
2: So this brings me to my my question that I've been really noting through the book, which is you're a lawyer, first and foremost, and that you try as you may to escape. There's such a deep focus on these issues of what is lawful and what is not lawful. And in a sense, I think it ties together what you said about John Lewis, Brad, which is, how do you teach- I was
3: just thinking the same thing, by the way.
2: Um, You know, what do you do? How do you teach a child that sometimes the law is weaponized for very bad ends? And as you said, you know, we often say now, you know, everything that the Nazis did was lawful uh, under color of law and signed off by judges. And it's very clear to me that there is a theme uh, throughout the book, you know, you're mentioning, I think several times, Uh, operatives and leaders in the Nazi movement who went to law school. Uh, You mentioned that the three um, leaders, FDR and Churchill and Stalin, are starting to lay the groundwork um, after hearing about Maidonic and other atrocities. How are we going to have a judicial framework to try Nazis post-war? These are all very Brad Meltzer themes to me, notes. And they're also notes, I think, of a much longer conversation you must have been having in your had certainly for the last couple of years, about these big themes of the rule of law, democracy, what does it mean to have, as you said, mild-mannered, uh, you know, low-level staffers uh, gleefully uh, planning the eradication of all the Jews of Europe? How have the past couple of years shaped your thinking on these, I think, really existential legal questions that we talk about so much on this show, which is, is the law a force for good <laughs> or is it a force for bad or is this just kind of a cosmic struggle where it can be both and it's our responsibility in the manner of John Lewis to try to bend it toward better rather than worse outcomes?
3: Listen, we're, we're both lawyers trained to not just in it, but to love it. And both of us have spent our past four years plus more um, basically writing books about what you do when you don't agree with what the law is doing, right? We don't have to be shrinks to figure out what the two of us have been dealing with in our lives, right? I mean, Lady Justice is all about all these people who are like, no, I don't care what the law says, I'm gonna push back against it. Um, and I'm clearly writing, not just for adults, but for kids and saying, you know what, the law sometimes isn't the only answer. And, you know, for me, I, I can tell you, you know, just to answer your question completely directly, I, I will never forget that one of the first acts in the Trump administration was basically going after that Muslim community. Um, and not because I have friends who are Muslim or not because of any of that, but I just remember that was a, a, a moment for me. And you can go on my social media, you can go back, like, I'm just like, no. I need to publicly, and I don't really get political about any of this stuff. I feel like there are some things we need to be able to agree on as a society and and we need to agree on what decency is and we need to agree on what kindness is. And there are things we do, I think, as a culture, do agree on. But I just remember th- that struck me as just one of those moments where they're picking on someone. And, and to me, the American dream has never been about making money. And not just because my family didn't grow up with money, but it's never been about just making money. To me, the American dream... I'm trying to think of the best way to say it, but really is about when you see a group that's being picked on, when you see someone being bullied, is having the strength of character to say no. No, you can't do that. And and that's been my own struggle with the law. Like, what do you do when the law is in hands of people who are going to use it as a, as a weapon? And, and we've seen it weaponized in these past years. Um, so it, there is no accident what I'm writing about. The, the John Lewis book is, it comes from the exact same DNA as the Nazi conspiracy does, and I know one is for kids and is a beautiful, inspiring kids book, and one is filled with Nazis. Um, but to me, they're no different. They, they are stories at, of the same DNA at their core.
2: And I love, I love that as a last beat, Brad, because I think such a big theme, at least in the Nazi conspiracy clearly something you wanted to say in a clarion voice is everybody knew. You know, everybody knew what was happening at Madison Square Garden. Everybody knew uh, what was happening in Europe before Pearl Harbor. Everybody in Germany and Poland and France knew what was being done to the Jews and the Roma and other undesirables. Uh, Everybody knew. And I think that is so deeply connected to what you're saying about if we all agree on things and yet we know that other things are happening then we really are back at john lewis we are back at then it's on us as individuals to step forward it feels to me like that's a theme that also connects both these books
3: uh, listen it it is my it is my hope and it is my greatest fear just as you just expressed and if you don't use your voice um look out and and it is to me disgusting when I see that silence. Um, and it is the clarion call. It's like, you can't. I'm not gonna let you tell the story that we just punched the Nazis and saved the day. We just didn't. I mean, even down, you can see it in the beginning of the book, I, I, we make it very clear, we don't wanna fight Nazis. We didn't even care about Nazis. The only reason we got involved, you know, World War I, we lost so many people, buried all these bodies. We didn't wanna fight another world war. The stock market crashes. We don't want any more headache. We're isolationists. FDR is brought on to save the country from ruin. The only reason we get involved is because Pearl Harbor happens. And suddenly we're like, oh, we got to get in a fight now. Um, it's not because we're the best people in the universe, but my God, we got to be. We have to. And if you don't, if you don't use that voice, look out.
2: Brad's brand new book, The Nazi Conspiracy, written with Josh Mensch, on sale right this second. Run out and get it. I absolutely promise you, dear listeners, um, I couldn't put it down. And the children's book is I Am John Lewis, and you should rush out and get it for all the lovely young humans in your life, even if they don't think you're the smartest person in the room. Brad Meltzer, it is such a treat always uh, to be with you. I wish you good luck on both these books. And I really do thank you for doing this thing that is very hard which is making the law interesting and relevant to people who sometimes think that, you know, it's good for, like, law and order purposes, but not much more. And I think that in so many ways, uh, you are making it come alive, not just for us, but for our kids. Thank you. Love you for it. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so very much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch always at amicusatslate.com. You can find us at facebook.com slash amicuspodcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Podcasts at Slate. And Ben Richmond is senior director of operations for Podcasts at Slate. We will be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Till then,
3: take good care.